Bibles tonight to Romans chapter number 1, as we've been saying for several months now. We're, no, chapter 1. We're going to study chapter 12, but I want you to turn to chapter 1. <laughs> and uh, this is really not my favorite favorite kind of preaching. I, I'm glad Kenneth said that, actually, because that's what I would like to do, is jump right into the middle of the study and really get started and look at the verses in detail and each word in particular. And uh, that, That's what I love. But but I also realize sometimes that we're, we're better off if we get sort of a road map uh, to figure out where we are and where we're going before we get started. You know, it's a, a, a bit hard to, to know what's going on if you're driving down the road uh, 65, 70 miles an hour and you don't have a map and you're hoping you'll get to, from point A to point B. Uh, you're liable to run into some problems. Well, we can do the same thing when it comes to Bible study. So tonight, uh, I guess I guess I would title the message a roadmap to Romans. And uh, let me remind you that there are certain verses in the Bible that every Christian ought to memorize. Certain verses in the Bible that every Christian ought to memorize. There are certain words in the Bible that every Christian ought to understand. There are certain doctrines in the Bible that every Christian should be familiar with. And uh, there are certain books in the Bible that every believer should study carefully and certain chapters in the Bible that need to be mastered. I, I can think of some naturally as you can right off the top of my head, certain chapters in the Bible that are so very important that we study them and master them. For example, John chapter 3. I mean, you, everybody needs to know that, and you need to study that. And, and, and so many times we just grab a verse out of a chapter and run with it. I've even heard preachers I've even heard preachers supposedly quoting Jesus when they were quoting John the Baptist. I mean, you've got to pay attention to where you're at in a book of the Bible. And so John chapter 3 is a good example of one that we need to get a hold of and let it get a hold of us. Romans chapter number 8. Wow. How could we survive without a knowledge of Romans chapter number 8? There's just so much there. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, for example, is another one. Uh, for me, 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 is one of the most important, precious books of all of the Bible or chapters in the Bible. Ephesians 2, Philippians 4. Well, somewhere at near the top of that list for the believer... Uh, you ought to find Romans chapter number 12. And that's the reason for this study, because it is so very important that we understand what Romans chapter 12 is all about. So before we get started, let's just, let's, let's talk about the book of Romans, uh, in general for a little while. It's been called the Constitution of Christianity. Now that's a bold and a big statement, right? The Constitution of Christianity is the book of Romans, according to some. And that's, I think, a good way to label it, by the way. Uh, others have called it the Christian Manifesto. Another said that it is the cathedral of Christian faith. 
And, and, and now this could go on for an hour, I suppose, but I've jotted down just a few quotes from uh, some of the famous men in years gone by and what they said about the book of Romans. Samuel Coleridge, for example, he said, quote, that it is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. John Christendom, who was one of the early church fathers, said, Romans is unquestionably the fullest, deepest compendium of the sacred foundation truths. And uh, and by the way, he, he's the fellow, he had someone to read the entire book of Romans out loud to him two times every week. William Tyndall, who translated the Bible into English, he said every Christian ought to memorize the book of Romans. Well, uh, I suppose he's right. I haven't, but uh, if you do, it would be a good thing. John Calvin, and this is probably the only time in my ministry you've ever heard me quote John Calvin because I don't agree with him on so many things. But in regards to the book of Romans, this is what he said. When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all of the most hidden treasures of Scripture. And by the way, he is right on point in that regards. Because the book of Romans is so foundational to everything else. F.F. Bruce said, There's no telling what may happen when people begin to study the epistle of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 13 years preaching through Romans, and he, he just made it to chapter number 14 before he died. One of the reasons might be that he preached 29 sermons just on the first chapter. And so, as you can see, there is a lot here for consideration. A Swiss theologian by the name of Frederick Godet said, Every movement, now get, I want you to listen carefully to this, every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church, that's a mouthful, every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected to the teaching set forth in Romans. It is probably that every great uh, spiritual uh, renovation in the church will always be linked both in cause and effect to a deeper knowledge of this book. Well, like I said, we could go on for an hour quoting from theologians and pastors and other writers down through the centuries, but that, that, that gives you some kind of an idea as to what, as to what these people thought about the book of Romans. And so certainly with that in mind, it should be obvious that we ought to hold it in high esteem. A fellow of the name of Alva McLean several years ago said in regards to the author of the book, and of course I think everybody understands that the author was Paul, and how well fitted he was for this particular work. Whenever you stop and think about it, looking at it from the standpoint of the Greeks, he was learned in the philosophy of all of Greece. Uh, whenever you think about him as a Hebrew, of course, here we find a man who is an expert on the Old Testament uh, law and the traditions of the Jew. I mean, very few people, if any, would have been so well versed in the, the teachings of the 
of, of the Old Testament as Paul was. But then whenever you stop and think, this guy was also a, a citizen of Rome. And, and that was an amazing thing for that day and a story all in itself. But he was a citizen of Rome. And, and so he's a member of the greatest empire uh, in the ancient days. And so whenever you sum it all up, you can see here is a man that has an unusual ability. But, but, all of that being said, even with his great knowledge, he still was not equipped or prepared uh, to, to write this, this marvelous letter. And, and I say that because it took God to do a work in his life to change him, to transform him. And so God took him, as it were, on the road to Damascus, took him in hand, and, 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 and took him away into the desert. You know, sometimes we get the idea that if we're not right in the middle of all of the things that we enjoy, that we're missing out. Some, sometimes, like you know, the, the, the song says, a lot of times it, the, the problems and the trials we go through, those are God's mercies and blessings in disguise. And so uh, God takes him off in the desert, away from everybody. I mean, he's out there all by himself, and God does that. Uh, in order to prepare him for the work that he called him to do. So I, I, I'm saying all of that to say this. When you think about the author of this book, this is somebody you need to listen to. You know, sometimes you might listen to me preach, and I'll make some bonehead mistake. And, uh, and I, as I've often said, don't ever believe anything just because I say it. And by the way, don't believe anything just because some other preacher says it. You need to believe it only if the Bible says that it's so. You can't trust me, you can't trust anyone else, but you can trust the Bible. And here we find God using Paul to write this letter. So there's a message for us. Now, I had you to turn to chapter 1 because I want you to consider not only the author, but the addressee of the letter. Look at verse number 7 and notice to whom this letter is addressed. It says, To all that be in Rome... Beloved of God, called to be saints. So it's very obvious from this that this letter is written to Christians. And by the way, every believer is a saint. The word saint does not refer to a person who is, you know, holy or closer to God than, than other people. Every believer is, is a saint. And, and it has to do with our spiritual position, not our condition or the state that we're in. You know, a lot of folks are so mixed up on that. They think to become a saint that after you become a Christian, wow, you've got to, uh, you've got to live up to this standard that exceeds all others. And some would tell you that you even have to work a miracle to become a saint. Uh, but the Bible declares that it has to do with our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word saint and sanctification are closely related. It speaks about those that are set apart. And whenever God saves us, He sets us apart and He makes us saints. And so, notice, we're saints, but it's also pointed out here that we are saints, uh, they were, in Rome, uh, of all places. And, and I think it's important that we understand that because there's two aspects here 
of the believer. Notice he says, first of all, he says to all that are in Rome. Now notice the first aspect is they're beloved of God. That is, they belong to Christ. But then it says called to be saints. And that that's not referring to something that God is going to do later on. It has to do with us being commissioned, called, called to what? Called to being a dedicated one. Now, that's what God wants for each and every one of us. And it's important that you understand that, that, that it's these kind of people that Paul was writing to. And whenever we start in Romans chapter number 12, you're going to see that's what that chapter is all about. Us being a dedicated one. Us surrendering ourselves, Us yielding ourselves, body, soul, and spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. So... These people are in Rome. Now, understand, they are surrounded by heathenism. They're subjected to great difficulties, sorrows and trials, temptations, persecutions. And yet in Rome, they are saints and they are commissioned to live lives of dedication. So many times today we look at how bad the world is getting. We think to ourselves, you know, well, it's just not even possible to really live a, a godly life anymore. Don't kid yourself. I mean, God has us here for a reason. God has you and I here on this earth at this time in history for a reason. And it makes no difference how bad the world is around us we can still live a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We never are justified in our failures by saying, well, I would live for the Lord, but, you know, all of those other kids at school, they, they, they're just so rotten and they're just so no good and they don't want to hear me talk about the Lord and they make fun of me. Well, so what? They haven't nailed you to a cross yet. I mean, you need to get over that. Some people say, well, I'll tell you what, I think I'm going, and I've had people to do this. I'm just going to quit my job. Those people, they're the most ungodly people I've ever seen. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to quit my job because they curse all of the time and they do this and they do that. Just like you can't let your light shine in those circumstances. And, and what I'm saying is it's important that we never forget who we are and what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the kind of people that Paul's writing to, and hopefully that describes you. So we see the author and the addressees, but, but notice the aim, and, and look in, in chapter 1, verse 7 again, and here's the author's aim. This is the purpose. This is what it's all about. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, that starts out in a wonderful way. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could say a lot about that, and we're going to move on to chapter 12, and I don't want to get bogged down there, but I do want you to understand the aim of what he's trying to accomplish. Grace to you and peace from God. Now, here's what we need to remember. And if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you'll know exactly what I'm getting at. In the book of Ephesians, God in, uh, leads Paul to divide it into two sections. The first three chapters has to do with doctrine. The last three has to do with duty. The same thing happens in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters has to do 
with doctrine. But when we come to chapter 12 through the remainder of the book, it has to do with duty. In other words, the first part basically has to do with what we believe. The second part, which starts in chapter 12, has to do with how we behave. And and so it's important. I love what one preacher many years ago said regarding this. He says, let us not forget the vital part of doctrine is due. And we forget that sometimes we've got this idea. As long as we believe all of the right things, you know, and, and we, we, we've come to accept all of the doctrines that the Bible teaches, and, and, and maybe it might be that we consider ourselves to be somewhat of an expert of the Bible. We think of ourselves as a great scholar of the Bible. But that means absolutely nothing if we don't put it into shoe leather. And that's what James was telling us there, you know. Uh, James is very blunt about this fact that we are be, to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. So what we truly believe determines how we will behave. John Stott wrote, whenever he was tying these two thoughts together of doctrine and duty, he said, all true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who He is and what He has done. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. Hence, the indispensable place of Scripture in both public and private devotion, it is the Word of God which calls forth the worship of God. On the other hand, there should be no theology, could be no theology without doxology. In, in, in other words, in other words, worship and work ought to go together and what we believe and how we behave, it's like a hand and a glove. They go together. And he went on to say there's something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship as it did Paul. Our place is on our faces before him in adoration. Beware, beware equally of an undevotional theology and of an untheological devotion. Now, I know that's a... That's pretty wordy and a lot of verbiage. And I, and I understand that you didn't get all of that. You're not going to remember all of that. But there are just some phrases there that I hope that you'll hang on to and, and understand that it's not just about what you believe. It's about how you behave. You know, I, I understand that we're saved by grace through what? Faith. It's not of works. But the faith that saves us will cause us to work. So somebody comes along and they say, well, I'm as much of a Christian as you are. Well, the, the question is, where's the evidence? You know, it's, anybody can say I'm a Christian. Anybody can say, oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe He arose from the grave. I believe He ascended into heaven. I believe He's coming back to earth. You believe that? 
And so, you know, on that basis, a lot of people think, well, I must be saved. I believe that. Well, the devil believes that. The devil believes that. And so it's not just about what you believe, but it's about how you behave. But how you behave is tied together with what you truly believe. So when we come to chapter 12, this is what I'm trying to get at. When we come to chapter 12, in fact, you could, you could entitle the chapter, A Call to Consecration. A Call to Consecration. And in the very first verse, let's go there. The first verse, chapter 12, I beseech you. In other words, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Paul didn't have a take it or leave it attitude. Over the years, I've known many preachers, and I've been so close to it myself. And so I'm sympathetic with them. I feel for them. I know where they're coming from. I know how they got there. But there's so many times that you pour your heart into the ministry, you don't see anything happen, that you don't see any response to it. And after a while, after you've been disappointed so many times, in order to protect yourself emotionally, you just you build up a wall and you come to the conclusion, well, and preachers say things like, well, you know, it's my job to, uh, to preach it, not to preach it and bless it. And I understand, and I've said that. It's not my place to bless the service. I, I can't do that. Only God can do that. But if we're not careful, we get to the place that, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to tell it like it is, and they can do with it whatever they want. I, I'm, going, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to walk out the door and go home and not, not worry about it, not think about it. Boy, let me tell you, any time a preacher develops that mindset, whether he resigns or not, his ministry's over. Yeah, he is worthless to the cause of Christ when he gets to that place that he doesn't care whether people respond or not. Paul cared. And he says, I beseech, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. And, and notice what he says, I beseech you. And here's where we're going to focus tonight. I beseech you, therefore, therefore, Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to look back and see what it's there for. Because there is a reason. This, this ties what he is about to say together with what he has already said. So we need to look back to what he's already said through the first 11 chapters. And that's never more important than it is when you're studying the book of Romans because he's saying, you know, what I said, or what I'm going to say is based on what I've already said. And if you don't understand what he's already said, then, then this is not going to impact you as it ought to. So he begins to shift from, remember, from doctrine to duty. That is from exposition to exhortation. From creed to conduct, from belief to behavior. Now, when you think about the word therefore, we could take that all of the way back to chapter 1. By the way, that would make an interesting study. When you don't have something to do sometime, what you need to do is to just, you know, do a survey type study of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, and you go all of the way back through those 11 chapters, and what you see is the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. It starts out with the subject of sin, 
And then it speaks on the subject of salvation, and then sanctification, and security, and sovereignty. And then that brings us up to this second section in chapter number 12. So when he says, therefore, and by the way, he doesn't give an explanation to that. He doesn't say, therefore, in consideration of the first 11 chapters, Paul didn't do that. But I mean, it just stands to reason when he says, therefore, whatever he has already said is crucial to our understanding and our response toward what he is about to say. Are you with me? Uh, I hope you're not lost in all of this. So therefore, based on this, going back, starting with the subject of sin and salvation and sanctification and all of the rest that he's wrote about, he says, I want you to notice, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable Service, And we're going to pick that apart in, in our first message. But for now, just understand that his plea for them to present their bodies as a living sacrifice is based on all that has been said. Now, there's another way that we can look at this. We can take this word, therefore, as strictly being in the light of the immediate context. Let's go back to chapter number 11, and he says, therefore, so the preceding chapter, and and you're going to discover two things. In verse 27 through 37, it speaks about God's mercy. In chapter 33 and verse 36, it speaks about God's majesty. And so when he says, therefore, I beseech you to present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, he's saying, therefore, because of God's majesty, because of God's mercy. And so if you just go back a part of one chapter, you see that that there is enough reason there that when God says, I want your body, I want you to present yourself to me as a living sacrifice, God has good reason to say that. Because of His majesty, because of His mercy. You know, anyone can put demands upon you, but they don't have the right to do that. But boy, whenever God speaks out of His majesty and with His great mercy, then He has every right to impose upon us whatever restrictions or responsibilities that might please Him. And we have every reason why we ought to respond by presenting ourselves, how? Like a living sacrifice. So we can look at the word, therefore, taking us all the way back to chapter 1. Or... We can look at the word therefore as taking us back just to the previous chapter, which speaks about the majesty and the mercy of God. But, but I want you to consider if we just look back to the last verse of chapter 11. The last verse. Therefore, based on what he just said, well, let's see what he just said. For of him and through him and to him are all Things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Do you see why I'm doing this? Even if we look no farther than the last verse of the last chapter, 
If that's as far as we go, based on that one verse, when Paul says, Therefore, I beseech you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he is justified in expecting a response from us. So let's look carefully at what it says here. Notice, of him. Of him. In other words, he's the source or he's the author of all things. I feel sorry for those that believe in the Big Bang Theory, you know, that just something came out of nothing. That's the biggest bunch of unscientific nonsense that the world has, has, has ever seen. Notice, of Him, He's the source, He's the author of everything, not just some things, but everything, of Him. And then notice, through Him. In other words, He's not just the source, He is also the means or the agent. It's, it's of Him, but it's also through Him. As I said this morning, it's God that works in you both to will and to do. He gives us the ability to do. And so, of Him and through Him, but here's where we, we wrap it all up tonight. And maybe the, maybe I say the most important part of this, to Him. You see, He's not just the source. He's not just the means. He is the end. And notice how Paul closes this out. To Him, to whom be glory forever. Amen. In other words, His glory is to be the grand end of all things. In other words, everything ought to accumulate into the glorification of God. That's, by the way, that's why we're here. Whenever the Bible talks about the creation, it talks about, you know, the fact that, that God created the heavens and the earth for His glory. Whenever you look back at ancient Israel and you, and you wonder, why did God do that? He, he says, I've created them for my glory. It's very clear that He brought that nation into existence for His glory. Whenever we think about the church, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 21, it says, Now unto Him be glory in the church. Why do we exist as a church? I remember several years ago we were putting some things together. We had a mission statement and we, we were, in fact, we had a, a vision retreat several years in a row. And I was talking about the matter of our purpose and our mission. And it's so oftentimes, you know, that you'll, Maybe it's a restaurant or some other business and they'll have their mission statement. And you know, and that's all well and good. But I noticed in preparing those messages that a lot of churches had for their, uh, for their, uh, mission, uh, what their purpose should be and their purpose for what their mission should be. In other words, had it mixed up. Our purpose is not the same as our mission. Our mission is to what? It's to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's to fulfill the Great Commission. That's our mission. Our mission, you know, is, is not for us to try to feed all of the hungry in the world. Our mission in this world is not to reform America. That's not why we're here. 
He said, well, don't you love your country? I sure do. I want to see it reformed. I want to see it changed, you know, just as much as you do. But that's not the work of this church or any other church. We're not here as a rescue mission, as it were. We're not here to, you know, to minister to uh, the, the, the public in general. We're here for what reason? To carry out the Great Commission. But why do we do that? Why? What makes our mission so important? Well, it's because of our purpose. And our purpose is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, tells us whether you eat or drink or whatsoever things you do, you do all to the glory of God. Whenever, whenever we get so serious in our Christian life that we make that the number one purpose for our existence, when that is everything to us, I'm telling you, then everything else begins to fall into place. People all the time have these questions. Well, is it okay for a Christian to do this or that? You know, usually if they have to ask, it's wrong. That, that's the way it is. Usually if they've got to ask, you know, it, it's wrong. There shouldn't be any doubt about it. And the question is, is, is this going to hinder me or keep me from glorifying God in what I do? That's why you and I are here, that we might glorify God. So you need to weigh every decision you make in, in whether or not it will enable you to glorify the one who created you, the one who redeemed you, the one that has made you a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you decide, that's my purpose in life. It's kind of like the missionary had preached on missions, and after the service he was outside, and a little old lady come by, and she said something to the effect, Sir, I, I, I take it that you are going to China or wherever it was to win souls. And he said, No, ma'am. She said, what? And he said, no, that's not my purpose for going. My purpose is to glorify God, and hopefully souls will be saved in the process. He had the right perspective on that, whether you understand it or not. That's why we do what we do, to glorify God. And every decision that we make needs to be made in the light of the purpose for which we exist. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You see, he's not talking to unsaved people and trying to get unsaved people to make this kind of a commitment. He's talking to Christians. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Boy, I'll tell you, you know, when you think about that, that... To do that, you've got to mean business for God. And notice he says, oh, by the way, that's just your reasonable service. I'll never forget several years ago, this fellow made a profession of faith one Sunday in our church. We scheduled the baptismal service. He never showed up. Uh, the next week, he didn't show up, didn't hear from him. So finally, I went over to his house, and I said, what in the world is going on? I, I thought you trusted Christ as your Savior. And he said, well, I did. And I said, well, I thought you were going to get baptized. And he said, well, I was. And I said, well, why haven't you? And he said, well, you Baptists just expect too much out of people. <laughs> 
In other words, I don't want to get that serious about Christianity. Look, it's not what we Baptists expect. It's not somebody says, well, Brother Stone just expects too much out of you. Uh, No, I'm just telling you what Jesus expects and what did he say? Man cannot be my disciple unless he forsakes what? Everything. And it's going to take everything you've got. You can be saved and you can go to heaven if you, you know, that's all well and good. But by the way, you can go to heaven and stand up there with no reward. Somebody says, well, I don't think it makes any difference. You know, if we're saved and we're going to heaven, what difference does it make how I live here? It's going to make a lot of difference up there. There are crowns and rewards to be won. And when you stop and consider, you know, we talk about casting our crowns down at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in that day. You see, that is our way of demonstrating through our lives how much we appreciate what Jesus did for us. And it makes, it makes a big difference how you live now. And to live that life that is pleasing to God, it takes everything. There are no bargain basement sales when it comes to discipleship. There's no cut rate prices when it comes to being a disciple. It takes absolutely everything. Thing you've got. So I make no apologies for standing up and saying, look, if you're going to be a dedicated Christian, it's going to take everything you've got. And, and folks, we don't have a right to give any less than our very best. Amen? Why? Well, because God demands it and God deserves it. Present your bodies. Whenever I think of that, you know, it's like God saying, look, it's not, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming to get you and forcing you. I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, the body is that vehicle, that house that you reside in. And whenever he's got that, I mean, you know, basically he's, he's got the rest. When you get serious enough that you're willing to present your body and give him your hands and your feet and your ears and your eyes and just turn it all over to him and live for the sole purpose of bringing glory and honor to his name, uh, everything in life changes. So I hope that this will give you some perspective on where we're going uh, in chapter number 12. Because although it starts out like that, He begins to speak then about our place and our responsibility in the body of Christ, which is the church. That if you're a child of God and the will of God, you're going to be in the church. And you're going to be fulfilling your role in the church. But then, in order to understand how important it is that we surrender all, when he gets down toward the end of this chapter, he's going to talk about how we deal with one another. How we treat those that mistreat us and things of that nature. So don't think for a moment that this isn't practical because it gets right down where the rubber meets the road, right down where we live. And 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 I'll guarantee you, if you'll take this study serious, it'll make you a better Christian than you've ever been before. But that's all up to you. And it all starts with what? Presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable Unto God. Let's stand together. In just a little while, we're going to have a special time of prayer for our young people and Brother Kenneth and our counselors as they go off to camp. We want to do that.